Hey everyone, this is Sebastian from Designdros, the podcast where we're interviewing four thinking design leaders and progressive design minds on why, how, and what design and designers are driving forward. In the episode, I talked to Matt Wallot on driving behavior outcomes. Matt has been Chief Behavior Officer at Clover Health, which recently had the IPO, and he was also a director at Microsoft Ventures. Merging his backgrounds on psychology and product strategy. He also wrote a book called Start at the End, how to build products that create change. So in the episode, he actually teaches us on how to define outcome targets in the design process. So think about an outcome board instead of a vision board and the importance of setting this up to basically steer the whole design process, the product development process and all the iterations that are gonna come with user research insights and how you can use that outcome board basically as a constant filter and focus point basically to steer the discussion and to define which kind of behaviors you're looking at the design process while you're testing your design and how you can use that basically to create the outcomes that you want to achieve. So basically starting with the outcomes first and then work your way from there. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. All right, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to speak at the Desandros episode. Thanks so much for having me. So I think it would be amazing for the beginning if you could just give the audience a bit of context about your career, what you have done in the past and uh, some of the things you have uh, worked on. Sure. So my name is Matt Wallert. I'm a social psychologist by training. Um, I left academia, did a couple startups that got acquired and then was at Microsoft and was leading behavioral science for them. And then most recently, I was the chief behavioral officer at Clover Health. Um, so trying to change people's health behaviors. And we just went public. Gosh, I guess it's been about two weeks ago. So I left them back in March because of COVID and been chilling out with my son and spending some time. I wrote a book called Start at the End, which is uh, about the intersection between psychology and design and, and sort of product. And so believe rather passionately and have spent rather a long time trying to convince people that the right way for us to approach the building of things is sort of behavior as an outcome, science as a process. You know, for some people that means, you know, a PhD in social psychology or behavioral science, that's not what it means to me. To me, it's a process that anybody can use. The janitor can use it. Like as long as they're putting behavior, a clearly articulated behavior as the focus of what they're building, and then using a sort of experimenting process, a science iterative process to get there, that that's behavioral science for me. And, and I'm sort of on a mission to convince everybody to do that, in, you know, no matter what it is that they, they do or what lens they have on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, when it comes to behavior, do you focus on, uh, because I think there are different aspects to focus on when it comes to behavior. And do you focus on, say, let's say digital behavior, let's say sales funnels and like how people behave? terms of like to, to, to reach a certain uh, behavior or you focus on also on aspects like, you know, mental uh, outcomes and behavior or sort of more physical aspects when it comes to human behaviors life? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so I, you know, tech is a powerful instrument for changing behavior, but the behaviors that we often change are offline behavior, spending behaviors, exercise, you know, when we think about something like Clover Health, right, where we're doing health related work, Often those are offline behaviors, getting a flu shot, going to a doctor, taking your medicine, um, you know, all the sorts of things that we do to encourage people to be more healthy in the world and to engage in the medical system. And so a lot of times it's offline behavior. Um, And I, I, you know, I think sometimes people draw this somewhat false divide, right, between sort of offline and online behavior. For me, it's all just behavior, right? 
you have an outcome you want, and then you work backwards. And sometimes, you know, what really changes is the levers, right? So when you think about the difference between like, for example, a designer and a product manager, the levers that they have to change behavior might be different, right? The copywriter has the lever that is words, right? The designer has the lever that is visuals or flow, right? Or wherever they're, you know, wherever we're sort of carved out their, their territory, right? They're all trying to go to the same place. They're all trying to create the same behavior. What's different is the levers that they can pull to do that, right? Marketing has a lever that is advertising, right? The CEO might have a lever that is pricing, right? Like those are all just different levers to get to an outcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, super interesting. So is it possible to basically come up with principles or let's say a process that it could be used with all these different levers that you were speaking about because it can be very you know different uh when i when you compare somebody like um, a marketer or like a, a copywriter for example but i'm wondering if they sort of if there are principles that they can incorporate which are kind of overarching which basically so basically the your level is just the you kind of way of execution yeah it's an interesting question right so i at least in the book and and in my work suggest you know i have a 10-week process that i use it's very sort of you know it has defined you know, sort of deliverables at the end of every week. And it's a, you know, it's a very sort of, I don't want to say the word rigid, but it's fairly rigid, right? To drive people through. Because, you know, what can happen or has happened in the past is like, particularly with something like UX research, right? You go away for six months, you come back with this report, it has some sort of nebulous sort of recommendations, right? But it takes a really long time and it's not synced up with the product cycle. If you can get something to like a very short, discrete timeline that you can then psych, you know, you can sort of sync up with the product development cycle you know, then you can, I think, can get to a better place, you know, 10 week sprint, something like that. But there's, you know, the more general question, there's another way to take what you said, which is the sort of like, are there fundamental things that underlie humans? And the belief is certainly yes, right? Because if there would be no field of psychology, if we didn't think that we could find things that were common across people, right? The, the thing that I always try and emphasize is just because it worked in the lab doesn't mean it works in life right? With that specific population in that specific environment, right? Because humans are very complex and all of these rules interact with each other. So for me, academic psychology can certainly suggest things that we might want to look at, but that's different than telling us what to do, right? We have to experiment within our own environment to find out if it actually works, right? And that's why behavior as an outcome science as a process is so important, right? You have to clearly articulate, well, what does works mean for you, right? When I you know, let's take car design for a second, right? Like when I design the dashboard of a car, I have to know what success looks like. What is a successful dashboard? Well, it's one where people are aware of their speed, right? Like speed awareness is a thing that I need someone to know. And that is a behavior. Like I can say, you know, do they adjust their speed when they get too fast, you know, or too slow, right? I can measure whether or not that happens. So I can say, well, in the lab, we found you know, numbers are better than a gauge, right? That could be some study that's, I, by the way, I have no idea if that's true, but some, there would be some study that someone, you know, had found in a lab, but you need to actually test that for your drivers in your environment because it's not universally true, right? It is true in the environment in which we were able to, to capture it, which is the lab. And so when we do work, we need to be doing work in the field. And that's where that, that sort of testing part comes in, right? We need to get the insights, but we also need to test them uh, with our people. Interesting. So you say basically behavior outcome has to be a, a success target or like a, a general target of your process. 
Um, so when it comes to outcomes, you can, I think, look at basically the outcome, which is sort of the immediate outcome, uh, basically of the action or interaction. Uh, or you look at sort of more the long-term consequences and the long-term outcome. Um, so how do you ensure that in the process? Because very often it's hard to foresee, right? So you like sometimes you see something that works fine, like as a first outcome, but then you kind of figure out, well, like there's some kind of long-term consequences to this. Uh, so like, how do you kind of incorporate this into a process? Yeah, I mean, so so two things, right? The first thing we do is try and set the stake as far out as we can, right? So it's not one behavior, it's many nested behaviors, right? Your company has something like, again, let's go back to cars. Like ultimately, the thing your company wants is for people to buy a car and then rebuy in the same brand, right? They want people to continue to, you know, they want brand loyalty essentially, right? So it's multi-purpose behavior is the end goal of what we want, right? But underneath that, you can nest a million things, right? In order to buy the car, they have to look at the car. So I want people to look at the car, right? Like they have to know the car exists. So I have to figure out like, how do I get the behavior that is knowing the car exists, right? And there's, you know, you can nest down and nest down and nest down. And that's actually, that's not a, that's not a bug, that's a feature. Right, because what that allows you to do as a manager is to give people accountability and autonomy at every level of the design process. Right, you can have a summer intern, and you can say, "All right, your job is this, you know, this very specific population's this very specific behavior," and you can have autonomy within that zone. Whereas at the C level, you're like, "All of these people and all of these behaviors are underneath, you know, your sort of rubric." And so I think that nesting piece. Um, is key. The other thing, you know, to your point, this is why this is some of the magical magic of magical. This is some of the magic of digital, right? Um, when we made physical products, and in particular, when physical products were hard to make, it was difficult to iterate, right? And so if you discovered that there was an unanticipated future behavioral context of, you know, consequence of something, you couldn't, you know, it took a long time to retool a factory or redesign something or whatever, right? But now we have these rapid prototyping tools that allow us to iterate and iterate and iterate. I have a good friend who, who uh, worked on the Microsoft Surface, you know, and they have, he has a hall of just all of the versions, you know, like the moment they finished milling one, they started milling another one, right? As they like tested forward, tested forward, tested forward, tested forward. And so I think two, two things have happened, you know, as you decrease the amount of time that it takes to actually design something, and make a physical instantiation. It doesn't have to be a finished product, but something that people can play with. That has allowed for more rapid iteration cycles. And then the ability to test those iterations, right? To deploy them to bunches of people is interesting. So I worked, for example, at Microsoft, I worked on Bing. And Bing is a giant experimentation engine, right? Like Ronnie Kohavi, who, who was running the sort of experimentation layer, you know, they were running a thousand experiments a day because you had millions and millions of people running millions and millions of searches every day. And because it was relatively easy to write code that would allow you to run an experiment, you could just try hundreds of experiments a day, iterating, 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 iterating. And so, you know, I often think about, you know, how do we shorten the innovation cycle or the iteration cycle for more physical products, right? How do you deploy into the hands of designers things that let them imagine stuff more quickly? I think you know, VR is a great example of this, right? VR and AR allowing designers to, you know, design something and then sort of hold it in their hands and move it around a little bit and be like, oh, that's not, it doesn't work the way I thought it was, 
right? Or deploy it to other people and have them say, I don't think it works. You know, that doesn't look the way I want it to look. I think allows for that sort of like continual uh, process of getting closer to behavior. But it doesn't come, but it's not free. You have to build the tools that allow for rapid iteration and you have to build the skills. It's not simply having a 3D printer that people can, you know, iter endlessly iterate their designs out of. It's also the skills that go along with science. How do you actually test whether something's work? How do you articulate what works means, right? That's a really hard thing. Like lots of designers struggle for this. You know, I love designers. I love working with designers. But one of the hardest things for them is often to articulate the behavior they're trying to create. A good example is, like, you know, I use the chair example sometimes. Like the point of a chair is to get someone to sit, right? And it is definitionally successful if it gets someone to sit, right? And a designer can say, well, I want to look good. That's great, but that's not the but that's not the end goal of the behavior. The end goal of the behavior is that somebody sits and resits in a chair over and over and over again, and over again. That's different than a design object that they bought as a piece of art that that they bought because it will look good in their room. I never intend to sit in it. Sitting in it is not the behavior I want. The behavior I want is buying it and putting it in my room and using it as a design piece. That's a different behavior. But you have to be articulate that. You have to say in advance, this is not a chair for sitting. This is a chair for looking at. Great, fine. We can measure looking at. We can measure how likely someone is to look at something or to comment on it or like, you know, what is the behavior you physically, literally want? And that's a hard thing to get people to get to sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, super interesting. How do you make sure that you, like, if you focus on a certain behavior, you might get like this tunnel view on the certain behavior that you want to achieve. But sometimes you don't really look around in terms of like what other behaviors this causes. Do you came across any process or advice uh, for people who design for a certain behavior that they don't miss out on sort of like other behaviors that, you know, could happen that, but you just oversee them. If you don't look at them, you're, you're not going to notice them, right? Uh, yeah. Any kind of experience when it comes to them. No, you're hundred percent right, right? There is this weird thing that we ask people to do, which is maintain tunnel vision on the thing they're accountable for, but also be aware of the things happening around them. One example I often use is team sports, right? There's a lot of team sports. You know, if you play football, you have to be aware of yourself and the defender, but you also simultaneously have to be aware that like, ah, Sebastian's like somewhere down the field. And if I kick it over here, I can like kick it to Sebastian, right? Like there's this need to be sort of like here and there at the same time. Now in a sports team, you have to kind of do that live and people train very hard to get that sort of spatial awareness, to get that aware, you know, sort of like, everything that's going on awareness. But what's interesting is I think in business, that's what managers can help do, right? That's what good management actually is, right? It's helping people understand how what they do fits in with all the other pieces and allow them the clarity of focus, right? To do that. A good manager, you know, they've measured the pieces of the puzzle to make sure that they fit, right? And they are, and they're doing everything that they need to do to, to sort of keep people on track with each other. And I think You know, this is where we go back to that nested behavioral statement. It's a lot easier to see where your and my piece might not fit together if we're clearly articulating what it is that we want, right? Like, and the subordinate layers of those. So like, Sebastian, your job is to get people to buy it, but that is subordinate to getting people to sit in it, right? Like yeah, yeah. buying is subordinate to sitting. And so recognize that like the things that you do cannot have a detrimental effect on sitting. They could be neutral to sitting, but they have to be, you know, sort of levering up in the right way. 
And so I often think that like designing the layout of behavioral statements is half the battle. So I think that you're, you're absolutely right to call it out because people can get tunnel vision. And that's, you know, the job of good managers is to like coordinate the delicate ballet of, you know, what needs to get nested under what. Mm -hmm. Super interesting. What do you think is the role of gamification when it comes to achieving certain behaviors? Yeah, it's, so gamification is interesting because it's always hard to tell what people mean, right, by gamification. I think, you know, people took it rather literally, like, I will add points and stars and things, right? Like, but I don't think, for example, like, I don't think that's what Jane McGonigal really meant when she sort of talked about like bringing games into the world. I think so, you know, at least for me, I talk about promoting pressures, reasons to do something, inhibiting pressures, reasons not to do something. Right. And so, you know, gamification typically refers to adding, promoting pressure, using by whatever means you want, something that makes something more attractive to do. It's not about removing, it's not making it easier to do. It's not removing inhibiting pressures. It's adding, promoting pressures. Further, I'll argue, if you look at promoting pressures, right, reasons to do something, often we talk about happiness as psychologists, we break things into two categories, satisfaction and delight. And they're relatively independent of each other, by the way. It's interesting, like, we can do an experiments, for example, where we give people like a cell phone, and I like ping you randomly throughout the day, and I say, Sebastian, how, are, how happy are you in this moment? You know, one to five, how happy are you? And then at the end of the day, I ask you sort of like, Sebastian, how's your life going in general? And what's interesting is they're not correlated with each other. We're not well correlated with each other. You can have lots of moments of happiness and still feel like your life is not going very well. You can have very few moments of happiness and still feel like your life is going relatively well. And so, you know, they're not necessarily correlated with each other. And so I often think when people talk about gamification, what they're really talking about is delight. That momentary experience of happiness, that Sebastian, how happy are you in this moment? I think most gamification features do not make us satisfied, but they make us delighted. And in reality, happiness requires both components. And I think good companies, smart companies are looking discreetly at both, recognizing that trade-off between satisfaction and delight. I need to be, make people sort of permanently happy. I need them to be satisfied, right? I, I have to say most of the time, I think satis, and maybe this is the reason I'm somewhat negative on gamification, delight is subordinate to satisfaction. As an example, like let's go back to cars, like it is the rebuying behavior. Rebuying beats buying. Right, buying once and never buying again is not as good as buying over and over and over again. Right, and buying over and over and over again is dependent on satisfaction, not delight. You know, I think maybe one of the reasons gamification was somewhat of a failure was people over concentrated on, on to your point, the momentary, and they didn't understand the long term effects of the things that they uh, that that had. Social media is another great example, right? Like, I think. Facebook over-rotated to the delightful, right? It over-rotated to the sort of momentary action and forgot satisfaction, forgot what that means, forgot that there was like a long-term need. I actually think Twitter does a better job of that, right? One of the reasons that I think they, they, they are a stronger platform than Facebook in many ways is that they are more attuned to the need for sort of satisfaction over time, as opposed to like the momentary sort of delightful. I think Facebook figured that if they if they just kept people delighted for long enough, people would stay on it. But it turns out like delight alone does not keep people around. Super interesting perspective on that. Yeah, and I think I totally agree that some maybe some products that take it to literal when it comes to the concept of gamification, right? It's not as simple, right? It's, it's a quite complex topic. Um, what do you think good uh, products or services that come into your mind, maybe besides the ones you worked on yourself, that uh, a good example of behavior as an outcome? Uh, I mean, I think all products create behavior, right? Whether they do it intentionally or unintentionally. Yeah. 
right? You know, I think one of my favorite examples that is the transition from, from sort of smoking to vaping, right? You know, we, we put in place strong inhibiting pressures on smoking taxes, sort of, you had to be over, you know, a certain age to get them. They are behind the counter, like lots, you know, we told them they'd kill you, lots of, you know, big warning labels, lots of things. And then we attacked the promoting pressures, right? We banned, adver- at least in the US, we banned advertising, right? So you couldn't make them look cool. You couldn't do all those things. But what people didn't think about was the reasons people, they didn't think carefully enough about those promoting pressures, right? Um, they didn't think about, for example, the economy of cigarettes, right? And what I mean by that is the like, borrowing, you know, bumming a fag from somebody, right? Like stealing a cigarette from Sebastian and then, you know, giving him back one next, you know, knowing that he'll sort of borrow next week, right? There's that mutual small incidence of borrowing that strengthens friendship, right? And that's something that I think we didn't eliminate just because cigarettes went away, didn't like left an unmet need. And so vaping stepped in to meet this unmet behavioral need. You know, another good example is like, cigarettes were a really good way of, of moving environments. So like, you know, I think Sebastian's kind of cute. We're in the club. It's loud. Like I want to get closer to him. I want to have a real conversation with him. So like, let's go outside and smoke a cigarette becomes a way of creating an intimacy, an intimacy for us and a moment for us. Right. That just because cigarettes went away, didn't mean that need went away. Right. And so, you know, vaping stepped in to, to, you know, sort of honor that need. And I think that that's the kind of stuff that recognizing there are some that that humans have a lot of core motivations, right? We want to, we were talking off camera about, about Trump, right? In my country. And a lot of people, I think as recently evidenced by, by the attempted insurrection, a lot of people, there are identity-based reasons that people are doing these behaviors, right? They want to fit in with a crowd of people. They want to stand out, right? They want to get their tweetable moment inside of the Capitol, right? You know, there are all of these sort of complex identity needs that are getting played out in America right now through behavior. And I think that's a great example of a place where products could step in, right? In some ways, making people feel like they belong about something other than white supremacy, perhaps the best anti-racist thing we could do. If you are a product designer right now, figuring out how to help people fit in around something that isn't their race is probably the best anti-racist thing you can do right? The reason people gravitate towards something like white supremacy is because they don't feel like they fit in. They feel like rejected. They feel disconnected. They don't feel like they have a place. And so when we give people a place through other methods, that can be, you know, a sort of incredibly empowering thing. Happy people don't, happy people don't storm the Capitol. Like people who feel self-actualized and satisfied and feel like they both stand out and fit in, you know, they're not storming the Capitol. People who storm the Capitol are people who, who are deeply, deeply unhappy and figuring out, how we deal with that crippling unhappiness is something that you know we have to do as a country. Super interesting what you touch on. I mean, the topic, especially also the topic about identity, right? So people want to uh, always they strive to match themselves with the identity uh, they think of themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And how can you make people you know feel belonged on a product? Could this be even a concept for gamification in the sense of in a product that you want to basically be that identity and or like evolve yourself towards the identity. Is that say a concept that could fit into also product development and, and, and something you have come across? Yeah, for sure. So there's a, a chapter in my book uh, where I talk about the snowflakes in a blizzard problem, 
right? So humans are driven very deeply by two by two sort of competing needs, right? The need to stand out and the need to fit in. And simul- and I need to be able to do both simultaneously, which is sort of odd, right? Like it's not, I, I, there's this balance and whichever one isn't being honored is the one I sort of gravitate towards. So cars is actually a great example. I use it all the time in talks, right? There's this great experiment um, by some folks at Stanford where, you know, they're looking at belonging and, and uniqueness. And one of the examples that they use is how people, you know, they get people to articulate their dream car, and then they get them to imagine that their best friend bought the same car, and how would they react emotionally? And it's interesting. People who are high socioeconomic status say, oh, I'm so mad, right? Like, how dare they steal my car, right? Like, that was my car, my thing. Like, how did, you know, they stole my identity. And people who are lower on the socioeconomic scale say, oh, that's awesome. Like, now Sebastian and I can start a, like, black Mustang club and we'll get all our other friends to get black Mustangs and we'll drive around and we'll be like the black Mustang guys. Right. Like, and so they have very different reactions based on whether what needs to sort of, you know, people, high SES people are trying to stand out, right. Low SES people are generally looking for a way to fit in. And so, you know, they react differently based on which of their needs is sort of triggered by this situation. And so good products figure out ways to do both a good community, if you think about community management within digital products, like a good community allows people to feel like they're part of something, but also have a a way to feel unique. Workplaces are the same way, right? If I think about designing a work, I think about workplace design a lot, right? If I'm designing a workplace, designing the community that is a workplace, I want you to feel like a part of the company, but also to feel like you have a special, unique role that is absolutely vital to what we do and that only you could do, right? If you look at psychological safety, so the, the best predictor of team performance, um, Google did, you know, has done a bunch of longitudinal work on this. Um, they, you know, there's a scale called psychological safety scale. And one of, the, one of the questions is essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially like people on this team are valued for their unique skills. And I'm like, yes, that, exactly that. I wanna feel like so car design is actually a really good example of this because it's something I think it hasn't done well. People went too far in one direction. There was that, you know, I can't remember, was it Toyota or whoever it was that would totally let you customize your car, right? Like you could customize everything about it, right? It was like a modular car. And it didn't sort of take off because that was too much customization, right? Like it was unique, but I didn't fit in with anybody else. Now I just had this uber unique special car, right? You know, sneakers, another good example, right? Like you can really super customize sneakers but you still need to sort of fit into the sneaker tribe, right? Like you don't want to do that on your own. You want that income. Like the whole point of having customized sneakers is to show them off to other sneakerheads, right? Because if people aren't in the community of sneakerheads, they're like, cool, <laughs> right? Like, and so, you know, there, there's this sort of constant push pull. And so I think being really conscious and designing really consciously for that, right? Like how do I make somebody feel really deeply connected to other people? I think Tesla's actually done a pretty good job of this, right? Like Tesla owners feel connected to the to the community of other Tesla owners, right? Like there's that little like, you know, sort of like, ah, secrets, you know, ah, you and me, we share this, you know, like I think there's that community of things that you don't necessarily find in other cars. But the question then is how do you sort of make a make a Tesla also help you stand out and feel unique, right? And there's like this magical point at which Tesla was just popular enough that you like felt like you were a community of things, but not popular enough that everybody had one. And it's interesting in San Diego where I am now, right? Just because of the, uh, you know, the solar, uh, abundant solar energy of Southern California and 
the, the economics and other things of California, there's a lot of Teslas, right? Like a lot of Teslas. It is interesting to me as you're successful in, in sort of like selling, do you diminish the ability to feel special? And then what do you need to do to, to sort of make people feel unique again? Like what can you do to make somebody sort of have a feeling of uniqueness about their Tesla? Uh, super interesting point. Maybe that describes why the pickup truck looks the way it looks. But uh, And who buys them? Yeah, and who buys them, right? Like if you think about the socioeconomic demographics of the people who buy things, right? Like, you know, there, there are very definitely, you know, sort of like Ford versus Chevy trucks, right? Like, you know, is, is a big, that's a big community oriented thing. Right. And that's a big identity. So, and cars are really big identity symbols, right? They're very visible, right? We see them, we know them, like um, we know that somebody's car. It's an interesting thing. And, and identity is not, is not evenly distributed, right? The things that you find sort of unique and identity relevant for you are different than the things that I find unique and identity relevant for me. Right. And so, you know, people are want to fit in and stand out, but then there's sort of a, a knob that is like, and how important is fitting out, fitting in and standing out in this particular domain, right? And that that often varies with expertise, right? The example I use sometimes is, I've built every desktop computer I've owned since I was like 12 years old, right? Like originally I did it because I didn't have any money and it was a lot cheaper to build one. And then when I did have more money, I bought more expensive parts, right? It became a part of my identity. Um, so I would never let you like give me an off the shelf desktop computer. I don't want that, right? That, that right? Uh, But I wear the same thing every day. Like I literally wear the same clothes every day. Like I've automated that and I just wear the same thing. And there are people, and I guarantee someone listening to this podcast, there's somebody who's exactly the opposite. They would be more than happy for you to just send them an unbranded, as long as it worked, was basically what a Mac is, right? A Mac is like, I don't know anything about what's going on in there, but it like kind of works and like looks the same as my last one and kind of operates the same as my last one. And so like, I'm good. I'll just take, you know, I'll take that, right? But they would never let somebody choose their clothing or wear the same clothing every day, right? That would be repugnant to them. So it's not like our identities evenly, the importance of different domains is different by person, right? And so when you're designing, you need to kind of think of it as a two by two, right? You sort of need to think of it as like, well, first of all, how important is this domain, how identity relevant is this domain for my various populations? And then within the people who it's very important, how do I help them stand out and fit in, right? And you can do this with anything, right? every product, there's somebody who cares. There's somebody who cares deeply out there like about their soup brand and has very strong opinions about soup brands. I don't, but somebody does, right? And and you want to know who that is and you want to figure out how to interact with them while simultaneously figuring out how to interact with like Matt Wallard who does not care about the soup brand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, super interesting. And I mean, it's kind of despite the fact that it's not about providing a place for a community to engage uh, really, right? I mean, it's not about... I mean, like the low-hanging fruit would be, okay, like we want to make the people feel belonged or like exchange itself. That actually is not so important, right? I mean, also if you think about the brands, that it's not about that they have a space where they can discuss or a forum or anything. It's more the meaning of the brand or the meaning of the product rather that kind of connects them, right? I, I think it depends, right? Like some brands... I think any brand with high loyalty can create community, but how they shape that community, I think matters a lot, you know, and some, it, it is unlikely for that we're going to start a corn brand community anytime soon, right? Like probably soup brand is not like, we're not going to have like the Campbell's club. Although who knows, man, maybe there's, you know, some soup heads out there who feel very strongly about it. And, and, you know, 
I think gathering together people who feel very identity relevant about something is key. I guarantee, actually, I take that back. I guarantee you there's some soup influencer somewhere, right? I'm absolutely sure in the giant realm of influencer chefs, you know, there are soup blogs where some, you know, like soup mama, like is, is testing every soup recipe, you know, like someone is an influencer in the soup community. And which implies if you can be an influencer in something, it implies there is a community in it, right? Because you have to stand above that community. Right. And so my favorite example of this is Ravelry. I, I use this on stage all the time because it's a it's like a perfect litmus test. Right. In which I can say uh, I just ask people to raise their hands if you know what Ravelry is. And if they raise their hand, I'm like, OK, with perfect fidelity, everyone who raised their hand knits and everyone else does not knit. Because if you knit, you know what Ravelry is. And if you don't, you have no idea. Right. It's this community site for knitters. And it's a great community site that was like built by this husband wife team and like has grown and grown and grown. But it like has 100% penetration in people who knit and 0% penetration in everyone else, right? And I think that's sort of the miracle of community. Soup is probably the same way, right? There's some, I don't know, maybe it's only 100 people. There are some soup aficionados. There's a soup forum somewhere for people who care about soup, but it has no penetration at all with Sebastian and Matt. Right. Like, I have no idea that the soup forum exists. I do not care. Like, is, you know, it's this very. So when you start to pull at the extremes. Right. It's sort of interesting. But there are domains in which we have gen, like clothing. We generally agree that clothing is identity relevant. Right. Like most people have some identity feeling. Even I, who have automated my clothing, I still automated it in a particular way. Right. Like there are domains that are for everyone broadly agreed on as more identity relevant. And then there are ones where there's wide dispersion, right? Some some people care about soup, some people don't. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, super interesting what you touched on. What I actually meant uh, in the beginning was that I, I think uh, when I meant the, the role of the brand is that often these communities are forming by themselves, right? They don't, they don't have to be orchestrated by the brand necessarily. Like you were saying about these brands, they, they find some other way to connect each other. They, it's the YouTube, it's the social network where they find each other. It's not even that their brand has to step in to create this feeling of belonging so much. Uh, it's actually they find themselves the community and then they kind of organize for themselves, which is kind of interesting if you think about it. it, it yeah. It's totally interesting, but, but really successful brands go into those communities. Like it's like yeah. Reddit is a good example. Like if you don't have some evangelist whose job it is to sit in BMW's Reddit and like answer the sort of be like the voice of BMW in the community, like you're missing out. Right. Like that's a huge opportunity that companies, I think, miss out on all the time. You don't have to own the community to be involved in the community. In, in fact, in many ways, if you've if they've already organized, you benefit by being sort of a, a not observer, but like a, a passive participant. Yourself, right? yeah. yeah, exactly. You don't have to be the leader. Like, I think that to your point, I think sometimes there's the belief that like BMW has to own its own community. No, it doesn't. It has to be involved in its community. It doesn't have to own the community. A community is not something that's owned, right? It is, but it could be involved in that community. And it's best involved as a peer. I actually think the best evangelists that like lurk in the BMW Reddit group and like are the voice of BMW in the BMW Reddit group are the ones who do not try and take a leadership role. They chime in only when it is appropriate for the brand to comment, right? Only when they have some insider knowledge that only the brand would know. They let everybody else talk and then they just come in and say, actually blank. So years and years, a great example of this, years and years ago, um, I did something called Bing in the Classroom for Clo for, for Microsoft. And um, uh, 
you know, there's a there's a whole ton of Microsoft haters that whatever put Microsoft puts out, like they'll just you know be in the comments hating on hating on Microsoft, right? And you know, I put my name and I said, hey, I'm actually the guy who came up with this program. And then I just systematically responded to every comment. And like, there actually someone started a like it became like a viral meme or something that people were like, I can't believe this guy is so directly just answering all of the questions. But I wasn't like trying to co create a community around being in the classroom. I was just answering the questions that there would be no other way of answering. Like what, you know, Microsoft, blah, 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 blah. Well, only someone like me who actually built it could come in and say like, actually, that's not why that's that way, right? Car is a great example, right? Like, I hate this silver knob, right? That's a great place for a designer to step in and say, actually, the knob was originally black and here's the reason we made it silver, right? Like that's unique knowledge that the community can't ever have. And that's actually the best place, I think, for community engagement is being able to step in and say, well, here is the way, you know, here's the actual backstory. And, and then to take feedback, right? I hear that you don't like the silver knob. We'll, we'll think about whether or not we could do black in the next version, right? Super or, oh, I heard that your knob broke. Let me hook you up with customer support who can get you a new knob. Yeah, I, I totally love your insight, especially like, the, I mean, the idea that, you know, brands work best if they are, if they are peers in the community and kind of like uh, basically just be engaged there. Yeah? Uh, super interesting. I would also really like to talk maybe about your book shortly. Um, Start at the End uh, is the name of the book. It came out last year. We're going to put the link uh, to that book also in the show notes. Um, I think... Uh, it would be interesting to talk about why is it important to start at the end and is your process comparable to, let's say, a vision-first approach that you say, like, um, you need to start at the end, meaning you need to uh, start with the final vision and then work your way towards that? Or maybe you can give some context in terms of uh, some of the insights shared in the book. Yeah, so start at the end. Remember, I said, you know, behavior is a behavior is an outcome science is a process, right? Yeah. You have to know what it is you want people to do before you go and create something, right? To get them to do that, right? Like it's a very motivated process. I don't necessarily think it's, I don't know that it's vision first, or rather, I think companies make bad vision statements. This is a place where, like, I will admit that the title is poking fun a little bit at Simon Sinek because I think it's like start with why maybe, right? But like the whys he often expresses are to me very sort of ephemeral, right? And so it's hard to build scientifically towards something ephemeral because how do you know if you actually did it, right? Like it seems to me to sort of be like the Supreme Court definition of pornography. You're like, well, you know it when I see it. I'm like, okay, sure. Like I'm a scientist, that doesn't really work for me. Um, so so it, it is an outcome, but it, it, it might not be a vision first. It is certainly an outcome first. Mm -hmm. and, and if your vision is sufficiently behavioral, then, then maybe. But, but I think that there is a distinction between sort of, you know, if you've ever done OKRs, in some ways I'm more interested in the KR than the O, right? The O is this like descriptive thing about like, you know, whatever. No, I, I care about the KR. I care about the physical instantiation of what that would mean in the world. I'll give you a great, and this is actually a huge struggle for people, right? Um, I spend, that's why I said, you know, if you get a good behavioral statement, we talk about behavioral statements in the book, it's an, a formal articulation of the behavior you want to create. When a population has a motivation and limitations, they will behave as measured by data. I often think getting that right is sort of half the battle. And if you can get that right, it sort of goes well, but it is hard to do. People will say things like, well, I really want people to love our cars. Okay, well, what do you mean by love? Do you mean hug? 
Do you mean buy? Do you mean drive? Do you mean rebuy? Like, what is love to you, right? Because the moment we leap back into these euphemisms, we create creakiness in the process, right? Like all of us that have done this, that have collectively designed something with other people have had the experience where we've gotten to a point and like you're arguing with each other and you realize the argument is not about what you're building, but that you actually think you're going completely different places, right? That, and that is like so frustrating. And so if you clearly articulate it, like, it's not that you and I disagree, it's that you thought love meant this and I thought love meant this. And my thing is actually really good at producing this love. And your thing is really good at producing this love. But we're arguing with each other because we each think like, I'm like, well, your thing isn't producing my love. And you're like, but your thing's not producing my love. And I'm like, we don't even agree on what love is, right? And so that's why I think we need those sort of articulations. That's why we start at the end, right? That's why we make it a really clear, measurable, objective behavior. And what that does is create a more egalitarian workplace, right? We want to get away from a workplace where, you know, the, the most senior old white guy in the room, John Ivey, says this is the way it's going to be. And, and it's just a matter of taste. That's a bad world, right? It works when you have John Ivey and he's right, but you're wrong as often as you're right. Um, and so I, th I think that's a bad world. What we want is a world where, you know, we know that the chair is to get people to sit. And even the janitor has a voice about you know, even the best suggestion is the one that is objectively best. And we know it's best because it creates a chair that gets people to sit. And it doesn't matter who it comes from. It doesn't matter where it comes from. It doesn't matter how we get there. It just matters that we get there. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the rest of the book. So the first part of the book is about writing a behavioral statement. And then the rest of the book is about then how do you go run a process on top of that, right? Because remember, it's behavior is an outcome, then it's science is a process, right? And so it's about sort of like, how do you generate insights? How do you test those insights? Like, what sort of process do you run? to actually get to things that change a behavior, right? Because if there's, you know, if the first mistake that we make is not agreeing on what success looks like, the second mistake we make is believing that we know how to get there, right? Without testing it, right? Being so confident that this is the right thing without testing, 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 testing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, super interesting. I love that you, you know, point out that it's so important to align on the success and the kind of behavior that you have to reach because it's gonna make the whole process way better. And this is kind of your why, right, <laughs> in the mm -hmm. process, right? And it's it's better to uh, align that uh, and, and, and comparable to something more abstract, right? Yeah. And then, yeah, uh, the, the process towards that. I mean, you can imagine like at a car company, right? If your CEO came out and said, the purpose of everything we do is to get people to rebuy our car. It is, it is if their car blew up tomorrow, they would rebuy another one in the same brand. If, you know, if someone was... If your CEO was that clear about that articulation and everybody really took it to heart, it would totally transform the company, right? If you said everything I do, I do to make sure that they rebuy, like that is a real, like that is so pointy. And so like, I know exactly where I'm going and then I can realign everything behind that, right? And every change that I make can be viewed in, is that likely to get somebody to rebuy this, right? If I do that, is it likely to get somebody to rebuy that? And, and to your point earlier, sometimes that's creating a momentary you know, delight, this momentary delightful clunk of the door, right? We all know the clunk of the door is very important, right? Like that momentary delightful clunk of the door increases rebuying rate, right? And I can sort of trace, it's not that, it's not important that I can like see the direct effect. What's important is that I can like pull on that thread and I can see how momentary delight gets me there. Yeah, super interesting. I mean, it kind of sounds to me like it, it, it makes sense for, you know, companies to have something like behavior, outcome board almost or something like very transparent for everyone uh, to align on in terms of like top behavior uh, outcomes and 
unfortunately we are kind of end of time here when it comes to the the podcast i would love to you know continue talking to you about about that um thank you so much for your time Matt. thanks for having me Sebastian. it's always super fun i'm always glad when we get together and chat and and you know i, I think Design has a really important voice to play in behavioral science, and, and I'm glad that designers are sort of engaging in it because ultimately, you know, there's this constant back and forth. It's like, design does design sit on a product or does product sit under design? Or like, where's marketing in there? And the real answer is they're all just trying to drive behavior. And so rather than getting bound up in like what fits in one silo, let's align around a process to do that and then use the tools available to us to do so. And so I love it when designers are, are able to, to take on that sort of behavioral hack. All right, that was the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, it would really mean a lot to me if you would give it a positive review because it makes other people also discover the content. It would also mean a lot to me if you liked the episode and would share with someone else who would also benefit from the content and episode. And I would be super interested to hear about your biggest takeaway and learning from the episode. Just let me know via social media. I'm super interested to hear what you think. And I hope you have a good day. Bye.